You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. All right, let's get our Bibles open to um, Revelation chapter 2. That is the final book in the New Testament of the Bible. And um, you will see the second chapter, Revelation chapter 2. And speaking of uh, chapter 2, or second uh, things, we are in our second week in this series entitled uh, A Word for the Church. A look at the seven letters to the seven churches within Revelation. Again, this is called uh, A Word for the Church. As I think about that title, A Word for the Church, it reminds me of the proverb in chapter 12, verse 25, where it says this, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Love that. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs us down, doesn't it? Anxious thoughts, stress, all that kind of stuff. But listen, a good word makes us glad. And there's no word like God's word. And so God's bringing his word to us right now through his book called the Bible. And specifically in the letters to the churches in Revelation. And specifically today to the church in Smyrna. And so we are asking God for a good word that he might make us glad. Now listen, God's word and the word he gives, it's not always easy to hear. Uh, often it comes with rebuke or correction. It uh, comes in a form of, this is what we need to hear, the tough truth, but it's always in love, it's always right, and it's always that which is best for us, resulting in our lives changed for God's glory. God has a good word for us today, and as we accept it with trust and humility, it will be a word again that causes us to be glad, even though it might be tough in some ways to hear. So as we come to Revelation chapter 2 again, one of the questions that I want to answer right now is, why exactly is this specific word such an important word for the church then and for the church now? Why is this word, this letter to the church in Smyrna and the other churches, why is it critical? Why is it essential? Now one of the best ways to answer that question as to why this word is critical and essential is to understand the context to which these chapters in Revelation are put in. Whenever you're studying a verse in Scripture, context, as the phrase goes, context is king. Context is so important. One of the foremost ways we gather the context of a verse in Scripture is to know what paragraph does that verse um, contain? What paragraph does it lie within? What chapter is it found in? What, what book is it found in? What testament? And then ultimately, it's found in the Bible as a whole. When we're seeking to interpret the word of God, we take the verse and we gather it with all its surroundings. False teaching almost always comes ripping a verse out of context and making it say something it was never intended to say because you're ignoring all the context around it. All that to say, I want us to see the context of the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation to gain more awareness and have more impact as to why this is so essential to our day today. So here's a very simple outline provided by James Hamilton um, of the book of Revelation. I'll look at it right here. Okay, This is a simple outline again of the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 1. The emphasis on chapter 1 is Jesus is glorious. We read a bit of this last week. I mean, Jesus and eyes like a flame of fire, and from his mouth a a sharp two-edged sword, and he is awesome in his clothes and his hair white like wool, and just the the majesty and the glory of Jesus. Then from chapter 1, we come to our section in the next several weeks, uh, chapters 2 and 3. And the essence of these chapters is the church must be faithful. In the context of Revelation, the urgency that is there, the church must be found as faithful. So Jesus comes with a word to the church. After chapters 2 and 3, we see chapters 4 and 5. This is the vision of the throne room where God and Jesus are being worshipped in a way that only they can as only they deserve. That is an awesome piece of scripture which we have taught in previous years. And there we see Jesus as the the lamb who was slain, but he is worthy to take the scroll, the title to the earth, and to open it. And the heavens go silent, but then they erupt in worship. and, And worthy are you and praise and honor and glory and power. It is so awesome as God on his throne. And there's Jesus again as the lamb. That's chapters four and five. But from here then it shifts to chapter six to 16. And this is the description where God's wrath is unleashed with fury across the earth when the lamb breaks the seals. So this is the seven, this is, uh, the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bulls. And really it's a terrifying description 
of the wrath of God being unleashed upon a world that rejected him, would not listen to him, hated him, did not follow him. This is what it's describing right here in chapter 6 to 16. Then from there we see in chapter 17 to 18 where the enemies of God are finally dealt with in the righteousness and holiness of God. And here we see, so interesting in chapter 17 and 18, the Babylonic system representing the evil system of the world is categorized and summarized in two main sins. The sin of luxurious living and the sin of sexual immorality. Just think about that for a second. And this Babylonic system is dealt with once and for all and is brought to nothing as it should be in the face of the glory and the justice and the righteousness and the right wrath of God. The enemies of God will be destroyed. Then chapters 19 and 20, we see Jesus will reign. And this is where Jesus comes riding on the white horse and, and his robe dip in blood and he has written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord, an awesome description of the glory and the power. Listen to this, Jesus is not a teddy bear, okay? He's not a teddy bear, man. He's more than a friend. Jesus Christ is God Almighty. Jesus Christ is all glory. Jesus Christ is sovereign and majestic and all-powerful, and he is awesome in his display of wonder and, again, majesty and glory. He is more than just a friend. He is God eternal. He is everything, and he came as a servant. He came to die, but he's coming back as a conquering king, okay? Do not take him lightly, loved ones. Do not take him lightly. He is worthy of all praise and honor and glory and everything we can ever give. This is our Savior. This is Jesus Christ. And one day soon, he's coming back. He's coming back very soon. And when he comes back, man, people will not be laughing. They will not be wandering around their leisure and pleasure. They will be struck in awe and horror at sometimes when they realize who it is that they've rejected. And we will weep on account of the joy that it is to see our Savior coming to gather his church. Revelation chapter 19 and 20, again, the millennial state, and we'll see some of that today, Lord willing, again in this thing. Jesus Christ will reign. And then finally in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, this is the description of the new heavens and the new earth. This is the new Jerusalem. This is where no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more sin. And this describes what our home someday will look like. Amen, church? The glory of that. And I want you to see that all of this, this is one massive God-given, Holy Spirit-inspired story where this right here fits in in a very important part. Hey, church, wake up, man. You be faithful, realizing all of this. This is coming. This is, this is happening. So Jesus says, I got a word for you. I got a word for you, church, right now that you need to be prepared. You need to be encouraged. You need to be ready. Because this story that's unfolding, every single person who has ever lived is a part of this story. There is no person in the history of the universe that is not central in some way to this story. No person avoids it. When Jesus Christ returns, every single person will understand this story matters and this is the only one that really counts. See, this is why God gave the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, verse 1, these things were written to you, John, that you must know what is soon to take place. You see, the book of Revelation written that you must know the things that are soon to take place. Of one's context. The world is approaching end and eternity is coming. We're not playing a game. These things matter. Jesus Christ going out of his way to warn us yet again. I've given you a word. I've given you a word. I've given you a word. I want to lead you. I want to prepare you. I want to encourage you. So, wisdom's calling. Wisdom's calling right now. Live for what matters. Live for what matters. Live for what matters. Don't get distracted. Don't live for the world. Don't lose your life in, in, the, in the pursuit of pleasure and nothingness. Live for what matters. Wisdom's calling. It's not a game. The context heightens everything. At least it should. Lord, help us to see. So I say all that. You know what I want to do now? Pray. It's all I can do, right? Just pray. Help us, Lord, in that, in this truth and in this way. Let's, let's do that together. Father, we bow ourselves low before you because we are nothing and you are everything. And yet you love us. And yet, Jesus Christ, you came as God to earth and died that we might have a chance, Lord, to believe in you and live and never die. That, that in itself is, is just staggering staggering, Jesus Christ, the love and grace and mercy you show, and yet you ascended to heaven, and you're seated at the right hand of God the Father, that one day soon, Lord, you will come again to judge 
the quick and the dead, O oh God, and I pray we will be a church ready. I pray, O oh Lord, as we prepare for your second coming, Lord, O oh God, I pray that you would find us, Lord, filled with urgency and fervency, Lord, and sober-mindedness. Oh God, I pray that you will work even now. I just, I just beg you, Father, I beg you as only you can do that there would not be a hard heart in this room right now or people listening. I pray, Lord, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I pray, God, that you will um, ruin the sin of unbelief and you will replace it with belief, Lord, as your word says. Oh God, help us to see, help our unbelief. God, help us to believe in you, Jesus Christ. Help us to know uh, what the true story is of this world, Lord the story of Jesus Christ, the story of faith and salvation found in you alone. Please, God, work in our midst. Work in our midst, Lord, and reconcile people to yourself today. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Revelation 2, verse 8. Revelation 2, verse 8. Here's our text for today. We're not playing games, loved ones. We're not playing games. Verse 8 says this, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, uh, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Uh, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but, but you are rich, amen, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Uh, do not fear the, uh, what you are about to suffer. Uh, behold, the devil is, is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Notice this amazing uh, sentence, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. As with each letter it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then this massive phrase, truth. Uh, the one who conquers uh, will not be hurt by the second death. And some of you are like, what does that mean? We will get there again, Lord willing, at the end of this message. Okay, Jesus is preparing his church. And here is how Jesus starts with the church in Smyrna. Here's the first thing. I have four statements by Jesus as an outline today. The first statement by Jesus to the church is this. Um, I have overcome death. I have overcome death. Notice verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Now what do we know about the city or the church of Smyrna? Uh, the city of Smyrna, it was a beautiful city. It was a large city. Um, it was a proud city. They were proud of what they had accomplished um, uh, Smyrna claimed to be uh, the glory of Asia. Uh, Smyrna was also a very wealthy city. It was a city of trade. Uh, it was called a city of commercial greatness. But the city of Smyrna was also committed deeply, and you could say it was obsessed with idolatry, and specifically the worship of the Roman Empire. Um, and again, what we're going to find out specifically the worship as it led to um, of the Roman emperor himself. So this environment of idolatry in the city of Smyrna produced a context of tremendous persecution and suffering for anyone who is seriously going to follow the truths of Jesus Christ. If you were to be a Christian in the first century in the city of Smyrna, uh, this just in, you wouldn't fit in. Uh, you would be opposed at the very core of the beliefs of the city. And as you went forward with your faith in Jesus Christ, uh, that would prove to be a problem. Uh, you would stand out in a way that you may not desire. And people would have a very hard time reconciling your beliefs and faith in Jesus Christ with the um, idolatry and the emphasis of the worship of man, and again, specifically, uh, the Roman Empire. All that to say, loved ones, to be a Christian in this context, in the city, uh, that was a very serious context of suffering. We're going to hear more about that in a little bit, but again, here's a map. Here's a map of the city of Smyrna, what we're dealing with today. It's right here, okay? Interesting, this is modern-day um, Izmir, Turkey. This is the only city that remains today as a functioning city center. Again, you can see the important port right there that it lies within. But of all the seven churches, again, modern-day Izmir, Turkey, and this is where it was located, a city that had a lot to boast of in and of themselves, but a city that was not really receptive to the truths of Christ and those who were seriously going to follow him. So into this very difficult context of suffering and following Christ, here's what Jesus says first. Look again at verse 8. Jesus says, the words of the first and the last uh, who died and came to life. Okay, that is, that is so awesome. So the title here, on um, the first and the last, that title belongs to God alone. This is a title that the Lord used for himself in several places in the Old Testament. 
Interestingly, this is a title that Jesus used for himself within the book of Revelation. Twice. For Jesus to claim, listen to this, okay? For Jesus to claim this title, being the first and last, this is for Jesus to declare that he is the eternal God. That he has always existed. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I have always existed. Only God has eternally existed. This is an awesome declaration of divinity. When Jesus Christ says, I'm the first and the last, he's saying, I transcend time. I transcend space. I transcend all of creation. This is why the book of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and... Forever. See, Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is eternal God. Jesus Christ has always been. Jesus Christ will always be. He was not created. He is the most important, the most awesome, the most, again, majestic, infinite. He is God himself. This very statement proves that yet again in Scripture. And then we read the rest of verse 8. Notice what it says. And the words of the one who died and came to life. Okay, now this blows me away. Make sure you pick this up. In one breath, you have the eternal, omnipotent, infinite God. And then in the next breath, you have the same God who gave his life, who came to earth. That in itself is just boom. Okay? He was God. He came to earth. He subjected himself to the cruelty, punishment, of, of his own father, but then even, even the fury of, of his own creation. He suffered and died on a cross for the sins of man. He, he, he bore our sins and our penalty, but he did not stay dead. He rose from the dead. So in one breath, eternal God, the next breath, who came and died, but rose again. You know, there's a, a line in a song that we sing. I love it so much when you think about this. Right in verse 8. And the line in the song says, What kind of king leaves his throne? I mean, honestly, just you think about all the different religions of the world, all the different leaders and emperors and kings, and what kind of king would ever leave his throne? And it goes on to say, what kind of king leaves his glory to die? No other religion comes even close, not even close, to say that their God would subject himself in such love, grace, humility, and mercy to leave his throne, not just to live, but to die. What kind of king leaves his glory to die, leaves his glory to die? Loved ones, this is the majesty of the gospel itself. When you and I see verse 8, we see the eternal God who is willing to subject himself as Jesus Christ, God the Son, and to, and to die a horrific death in love, in humility, just think of the humility, in grace and mercy, because he loves, because he loves the world so much that all who believe in him will never die but have everlasting life. This is the wonder and the power of the gospel. So, so just, uh, just imagine, you're a member of the church of Smyrna, and this king, this awesome king, he says to you right off the bat, this letter to you, he says, I'm God, I've always existed, but I came, lived and died, and I rose again. So you're the church in Smyrna, your lives are threatened, you're suffering tremendous persecution, and Jesus right away says to you, hey, take heart, listen. He says, take heart, I've overcome death, amen? I've overcome death, I've overcome death. It's hard, it's hard, life is tough. I've overcome death. Jesus powerfully reminds them, I died, I rose from the dead, and church, you will too rise from the dead. I mean, how encouraging is that? Amen, Jesus, amen, Jesus. The temporal is tough, but the eternal, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. Life is tough, well, listen, life is tough, ready? But he is risen, Life is painful, listen, but he is God, okay? Life is filled with suffering, listen, listen, but he is coming, he is coming. That's the point of our lives. It's not to live just for now, it's to live for what will be. Loved ones, he's coming, he's returning. Look at Revelation chapter one, verse seven. Just turn back one page. Revelation chapter one, verse seven, okay? Hey, no yawning in church, all right? None, not today, man. Too important, too important, too much to do. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. If this stuff doesn't wake you up, say a prayer right now, man. Say a prayer right now. God, help me. God, help me. God, help me. I can't sleep right now. God, help me. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Awesome. Every eye. No one's sleeping on that day, man. Every eye will sleep. Will, 
will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth, notice this, will wail on account of him. Even so, yes, even so. Now, all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. What does that mean? You can have two meanings, but one primary, one primary meaning. When believers see Jesus Christ returning, those who are alive on the earth, I believe we will weep with joy. I believe we will wail in a good sense of, I cannot, all, all man, just imagine seeing Jesus Christ face to him. Just imagine the moment that you meet your Savior. I mean, there's going to there's gonna be a fast rush to see who can get the first hug, you know what I'm saying? But listen, but listen, listen. Those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, who have rejected him through unbelief, they will see Jesus Christ riding in the clouds. And the text primarily means this. They will wail in horror at the reality of the one who is actually the King of kings and Lord of lords and they have despised him and have not followed him and they will realize in that moment, what have I done? I am doomed. There is no more time. It's over. And they will wail on the account of the second coming and the appearance of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. That's a serious thought, and that's a serious truth. And maybe you're here right now, and up until this point, there has been unbelief in your heart. I want to appeal to you on the truth of the gospel, but the grace of the gospel. The truth is that we are sinners in need of a Savior. The grace is that Jesus Christ loves you so much, and you're here right now to hear the message again that you might choose by grace and through faith to believe that he has forgiven all your sins through the through the cross of Jesus Christ that you may never die. And he extends that invitation of love. And he wants you to know too, he's like, listen, I'm coming. The only reason Jesus Christ hasn't returned, he still wants to save people. Okay? So he's coming, loved ones. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. That's why we love hymns like uh, It Is Well. And here's a, the last verse of the hymn, It Is Well. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. Amen. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so it is well with my soul. Amen? Amen? You want to sing that? I want to sing it too. Okay, but help me out, okay? You know me. You know me. I'm not, I'm not a natural singer, okay? But we're going to sing this right now, and let's, and let's sing this together, and let's worship a worshipful environment in this place. Help me out, okay? Ready again? And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sighed. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trumpet shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Let's do one chorus. Let's do one chorus. It is well, it is well, my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well, with my soul. And you see, it's that truth and that theology that allows us to remember again the ultimate reason it is well, because he's returning. And Lord haste the day, and Lord haste the day, and Lord haste the day. Jesus says, I have overcome death. Every person who belongs to him understands. Yes, that is true. That is why I live. Here's the second thing Jesus says to the church in Smyrna. He says, I know the pressure you're under. I know the pressure you're facing. I know the pressure you're under. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, it says this. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are the Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, okay? So once again, Jesus turns his specific gaze towards the specific church, and he starts with, I know, I know, I love that. I know, he says, but notice what he knows. He says, I know your tribulation. Tribulation here literally means pressure. I know the pressure you're under. I know the pressure you're facing, church, but what was their pressure, okay? Let's break this down. We'll call it three pressure points, Okay? Three pressure points the church in Smyrna was facing. Here's the first one, the pressure of persecution. The pressure of persecution. Now we alluded to this earlier, but the city of Smyrna was obsessed with the Roman Empire. Okay, In fact, so much so 
that in 196 BC, they built a temple to the goddess of Rome where they worshipped the spirit of Rome. Okay? But it got worse. You, you, you worship the spirit of Rome. It's not long before you worship men or the emperor of Rome. So in AD 23, Smyrna won the privilege. Eleven cities were competing for this honor. They won the privilege of building the first temple of worship to the emperor Tiberius Caesar. Okay? And about 60 to 80 years later then, the exact time this was written, this book was written addressing this church in Smyrna, the emperor Domitian was the first to actually demand worship from the citizens of this city. He demanded to be called Lord. Now the Christians understood the term Lord, of course, was only reserved for Jesus Christ. For God himself, they could not bow down. They would not call some feeble man, some sinful man, Lord. But this emperor says, you don't call me Lord, man. You're in huge trouble, and your very life is at stake. So immediately, the situations the Christians in Smyrna are in, they find themselves in this tremendously uh, threatening environment of following Christ simply because they would not bow down. They would not call the emperor Lord. So Jesus says into this context, I know your tribulation. I know your suffering. Now watch this. This is important. The church in Smyrna, he says, I know, I know your pressure. I know your persecution. They were suffering for righteousness sake. Make sure you understand. They, my life's so hard. My life's so hard. They were not suffering for sin's sake. It's very different, Okay. Many people complain, oh, woe is me, woe is me, my life is going, I'm so bad, but, but, but listen, a lot of it, we're suffering because of our sin. They were suffering because of their Savior. And there's a massive difference between the two. And Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know your suffering. I know your persecution. I know the pressure that you're under. The pressure of persecution, number two, the pressure of poverty. The pressure of poverty on the screen for you as well. Jesus then says in verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Now, we have strong reason to believe the Christians in Smyrna were slaves of others. Um, meaning they had nothing materially and they had nothing worldly. The word for poverty here in verse 9, it's more than just they were poor. Oh, they were poor. No, no, it's more than that. It really means that they were denied the very basics of life. It's like they had nothing. This is a very strong word that Jesus uses here. And no doubt the persecution against them as believers meant that they were grossly mistreated within their environment. You know what we're seeing right here too? Jesus has a very special heart for the poor. Why? Not that he doesn't have a heart for the wealthy, but listen, listen. Not always, but often, wealth clogs the spiritual heart within people. The Bible talks about this all the time. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. You want the world, you forfeit your soul, that's not a good deal. So not always, but often, wealth gets in the way of the spiritual passion and love for Jesus Christ. And so often, not always, but often then, those without anything know their need because they are destitute in their situation and they look beyond themselves for the Lord. Not always, but often that's the case. And the well, I don't need Jesus. I don't need anything. I, I'm, I'm in control. I got everything going on. Life is good. I'm happy. I, I got everything figured out. I don't need some God. Not always, but often. And this is why the greatest danger of the Western church and in the Western society right here is materialism, worldliness, and the longing and obsession for more stuff that clogs our spiritual hearts and ruins our affection for Jesus Christ. The Western church is pitiful and woeful in this area. And Jesus knows this, and this is why the Bible says it's not impossible, but it's more difficult to be super rich and to seek the actual kingdom of God. Not my words, the words of Jesus. And this is why we must be even more diligent, adamant, vigilant in our pursuit to understand the culture we live in, but what actually matters. Because what comes next in verse 9 is absolutely awesome. Jesus says here, this is a supernatural power of the gospel. He says, I know your poverty, but in brackets... He says, but you are rich. Do you see that? That, is, that? that just fires me up, man. Can we overstate the power of that statement? It's just when, when Paul says, as having nothing, yet possessing 
everything. See, we got nothing, Paul says, yet we have everything. Why? Because we have Jesus Christ. See, this is the essential part of the Christian life. Where's my treasure? Where's my treasure? Where's my treasure truly? In Jesus Christ, we have all the treasure we could ever want, ever. He is the glory. He is the reality. He is the eternal worth of our lives. This is where, as a believer, Jesus Christ says, you're you're desperately poor in this world. You have nothing, but you're rich. You are fabulously rich because you are a child of the king. You are an heir of Jesus Christ. You have all the riches you could ever want possessed in heaven, and one day soon you will see that. That's why then, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you can look at the world and you can see the pursuit of money and the pursuit of stuff and the pursuit of, and you can say, in your face, money, in your face, materialism, in your face, lust of the world, in your face, all the new stuff I think I need, in your face, liar, right? And the freedom to say, I don't need you, man. I don't need you. Why is it in 2008 when the economy crashes in the States that the CFO of Freddie Mac goes into his basement and hangs himself? Why? Because his God is his money, and when your God crumbles before you, your only, your only hope at that point is to look up or just to look within, and then you, you end your, really? Really? But the believer says, man, I can have nothing, yet I have everything. That's the power right there. That's the power for our lives. This is how Jesus Christ wants us to live. But again, it's right in the text again. Jesus is like, man, I know you're poor, man. You're so poor. But you're so rich. As only Jesus Christ can. Doesn't that excite you, Lord? Help us to live like this. The pressure of poverty, but to understand, man. And again, listen, listen, though. Listen, wisdom's calling right now. Wisdom's calling, hey? Uh, it's the phone. It's for you. It's wisdom. And wisdom's saying, man, wake up. Live for what matters. Uh, uh, the phone's for you. Phone's for me. Phone's for me. Hello? Hey, it's wisdom. What's up, wisdom? Live for what matters, Robbie. Yes, 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 yes. That's right. Another, another example of that. It's ringing. Ring, 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 ring. I mean, if I could go to every one of you right now across the street, I would. Phone's for you. 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 For it. Pick up the phone, loved ones. Pick up the phone. Pick up the phone and answer it and say, yes, yes. Jesus is like, man, live for what matters. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Understand the power of what's happening. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. The pressure of persecution, the pressure of poverty. Here's a third one. How much do you think this starts with a P? Eh, it doesn't. The pressure of evil. <laughs> the pressure of evil. Look at the end of verse 9. End of verse 9 says, um, And the, I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Okay, so... The Jews, as they did often in the New Testament, were aggressively attacking the Christian church with slander and accusation leading to physical threat as well. What Jesus is saying here, he says they're not Jews. He's not saying they're not ethnically Jews. He's saying racially they're Jews, but spiritually they're pagans. Because the true Jew in the New Testament is, is, is a Jew by grace through faith. Right? It's, it's the real Jew is the child of God who comes into the kingdom. The real children of Abraham are not passed down, are not passed down by, by blood, but we're passed down by, by faith. It's not by race. It's by what we believe. We're the real circumcision, it says in the word of God as well. So this is what Jesus is saying. Ethnically, they're Jews, but really they're not because spiritually they're pagans. And notice here, notice the activity of the Jewish people in this situation, they are a synagogue of Satan. Wow. Okay, the name Satan literally means accuser or slanderer. So the Jews then, what's, what we're being told, the Jews were taking on the role of Satan by accusing and slandering the church. That's a shocking statement of how evil this really was. But Jesus says here, listen, he says, but I know the pressure you're under. I know what you're facing. I can see it all. I just want you to stop long enough right now and I want you to be super encouraged, okay? Jesus Christ knows every situation you're in. He knows every tear that you shed. He knows, he, he can count the hairs on your head. He knows every circumstance you find yourself. Jesus, he knows all your suffering. He knows all your suffering. He knows all your pain. He knows all your heartache. He knows, he knows perfectly our culture. He gets it all, man. He's not surprised by this. He's not wondering, what do I do now in Canada? Canada's so messed up. Oh my goodness, Canada. He knows it all. He knows your home. He knows your home. He knows your home. He knows everything you're struggling with there. He knows your workplace. He knows your neighborhood. He knows your family. He, 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 he just knows. And he says to you today, he goes, I know. I know, and I love you. I love you, child. 
I know the pressure you're under. I'm not oblivious to that at all. He says, I am with you. I am with you. Just like he is to the church in Smyrna. It's, I mean, notice, notice, it's hard for the church in Smyrna. It's really difficult. This is part of God's will. He's like, I know, I know. And I care. But notice what he says thirdly along these lines. Number three statement Jesus says is, but I will allow you to be tested. So that's so interesting. I know the pressure you're under, but I will permit you, I will allow you to be tested. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days and you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Notice here, Jesus does not say, do not fear, you will not suffer. Often as believers, we want Jesus to say that. Hey, don't worry about it, man. You won't suffer. I got your back completely in that area. Nothing bad will happen to you. Notice what he says. He says, do not fear when you do suffer. In fact, Jesus here tells them how they will suffer. He says, the devil will throw some of you into prison. So what's behind the persecution here in this text? The thing behind the persecution is the devil himself. Now, loved ones, remember, remember, we live ultimately in a spiritual world. This room right now, it is ultimately spiritual. Yes, it's physical, but it's spiritual. This is light versus darkness. This is good versus evil. Remember, the moment Jesus Christ returns, riding on the clouds, every person, every person on the earth at that moment, everything, all of a sudden, instantly is 100% spiritual. All that matters is the spiritual reality of them as it relates to Jesus Christ. Our world, fundamentally, the whole story, the book of Revelation, the entire Bible is painting a picture of a spiritual story. It's a spiritual world. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the prince of the forces of darkness, the prince of the power, principles and powers that are in that spiritual world. That is the enemy that we face. We must understand this. And this is what Jesus is helping us see again right now. So, so the weapons, the weapons of our warfare in this spiritual world, what are they? All right, the word of God, the word of God, and primarily our other weapon is prayer, yes. Prayer, right? So if that's the truth, and it is, 100% spiritual, that's where the battle's being fought. We have to, we have to fight the fight properly. And that, that's why we do these series on the Word of God. Without the Word of God, we're, we're, we're dead. We're, we, we have no chance apart from God's Word. And that's why we pray according to God's Word. Hey, um, as your pastor right now, can I, can I implore you Better yet, stronger. Can I beg you in this time of our life, society, church, nation, can I beg you to believe in the power of prayer? Can I beg you to consider your role as it pertains to prayer in this church, in your home, in your life? Dads, can I beg you to take up prayer upon your family? Spouses, can I beg you to believe in prayer? Children, can I beg you to never underestimate the power of church, church, church? I plead with you. Consider the power and the importance of prayer. We got a prayer meeting coming up again. Listen, there is no reason. We, we fill this room essentially right now three times in a row. But we don't fill this room once in a prayer meeting. If we see as we're supposed to see, that cannot be. If we understand the prayer, now I understand why it's hard. I understand our flesh, trust me, every time I come to a prayer meeting, it's a battle within, within my heart. It is, it's always a battle. And I understand how much Satan's terrified of this because it, it's our weapon. But this is why I gotta renew my mind all the time as to the power and the importance and the vital nature of prayer. If we don't pray, we're done. We must pray, we must pray, we must pray. As your pastor, I beg you, I beg you to consider your role on a weekend in prayer, before the service, during the service, as we pray together, in your small group, whatever it might be, just to say, what does prayer look like in my life? Because it is so massively important. Verse 10 continues, and it says, for 10 days you will have tribulation. For 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, commentators go back and forth. Is this 10 literal days? Is this 10 periods of time? Um, whatever the exact time is, the truth is not lost Jesus is teaching them this. Testing will be allowed. Testing will come to those who love Christ. 
But notice this also, okay? I love this. Jesus decides when this happens and for how long. Do you see that? Okay, so God is sovereign over our lives. Loved ones are suffering for righteousness' sake. God is in control of that. God is sovereign over your life and mine. God determines uh, what happens and how long it happens. If we are in that place right now of difficulty and anguish and suffering, our comfort is God knows. He knows. And for whatever reason, he has allowed, he has permitted these things to happen, but he also has the end date. And he will not delay. And he will deliver precisely when he chooses to, when that season will come to an end, and there's a different thing that will come into our lives as a church, as families, as individuals, as whatever. We see right here, though, he's like, I'm allowing 10 days. I'm allowing 10 days of, of tribulation, but it will end after 10 days. Take heart with that. Take heart with that. For some of us, it's a lifetime of faith trusting in him for the things that he's appointed to us and then we have our hope set firmly on what is to come that we have the grace and the strength to continue to persevere and not give up in this life that Jesus Christ has called us to live. That's all done though by the grace of God. It's all done by his strength. And then we see the end of verse 10. And then verse 10, and this, here's, the, here's the call for perseverance. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. That's so great. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, the reason things and people are tested is to prove a pro or is to provide a proving ground to find out if they really are what they say they are. You know, products, products go under so much quality control testing they, to prove their strength, their endurance, and their quality. You ever been to Ikea? You walk in Ikea and you see that rocking chair in that case. I haven't been there in a while, but last time I was, and it's this thing that pounds against the chair, and it's like 43,556 times it's done this, and it's proof. You walk by, oh, that chair is pretty durable. It's kind of lasting over time. It's really strengthened. Christians are the same, you know. Christians following Jesus Christ, man, you fall in the ditch. You fall off your bike. Man, you, you, you land in that hole, but you get back up because if you're truly saved in Jesus Christ, listen, what does suffering do? Suffering proves who's false and suffering proves who's real. Because when suffering comes false, I'm gone, I'm out, I'm out. But when you're in Jesus Christ, the glory of this, the glory of this, when you're truly saved in Jesus Christ, God has started something in you and he's gonna complete it. And often, though, when you're in this life and you're struggling to get by, when you're truly in Christ, it feels like you're dragging along and you're just like, I can hardly do this. But it's not you doing it all to me. It's God's grace in you. And the Holy Spirit's like, come on, let's go. Let's go. I'm so tired. He's like, I don't care. I'm coming. You're coming. I don't care. Oh, I, can't, I, can't. I know you can't do it. That's why I'm in you. Come on. Come on, right? And the thing is, right, supernaturally, everything in you says, I want to give up. I want to give up. I want to give up. Life's so tough. I can't. But if you're truly saved in Jesus Christ, God says, I know you want to give up, but you're coming. You're coming, child. And yeah, you fall down and yeah you have a wayward month and yeah you have a season where your heart grows cold but in the end you come back you because you're God's he loves you and he's like come on child we're going to glory we're going to glory and you're like okay we're going to glory and supernaturally one foot in front of the other and you can't believe it because God's like here you go boom and here you go boom and you keep walking and it's inexplicable and you can't explain it because it's the grace of God within you that's the reality if you're truly saved you will be faithful faithful unto death because you cannot stop what God has started, right? It's awesome. It's awesome. And listen, this is the hope of the gospel. We can't do it. We can't do it. It's God in us. God, I can't do it. I hate my sin. I'm so disgusted by my sin. I can't believe Jesus forgives my sin, but he does, and he loves me, and he forgives me, and he continues to tell me to walk and walk by his strength and grace each day. I can't. I know, Rob, you can't do it. I'm in you. I'm in you. I will do it. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And you get to the end, and then he, he returns in the clouds, and you say, what will that day be like? Bawling, bawling, and falling down at the face of Jesus, and it's all over. You made it. You made it in the face of persecution, in the face of threatened life, in the face of hostility, in the face of suffering, in the face of heartache. And that's the point. Don't you see, that's the point. He calls us to something so much greater than ourselves. I love saying to people, they come up for prayer after service and are struggling so much, and I say to them, hey, listen, don't give up. Don't give up, and really what I'm saying to you is, if you're in Christ, you can't give up, and so you won't give up. And this season's tough for you, but listen, he, he will carry you through. Be faithful unto death, 
be faithful unto death, for I will give you the crown of life. That, that, that is not a king's crown. That's, a, that's um, an athlete winning a race crown, laurel wreath. Just think about that. Okay, ready? Ready? You finish the race. Jesus Christ presents you with your prize, your crown of winning this race. More balling. <laughs> right? And just before the glory of Jesus Christ, well done, my good and faithful servant. More balling. I mean, oh man, this is actually going to happen. Awesome. And he will present to you the crown of life. Of life. And that is why then, that is why we understand, right? Jesus says, I've overcome death. Jesus says, I know what you're facing. Jesus says, I will allow you to be tested. And this is why Jesus then says this, I guarantee it's going to be worth it. I guarantee, loved ones, it's going to be worth it. Look at verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Holy Spirit's talking today. I hope we're listening. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Okay, that's a very important phrase today. Actually, this phrase struck me in a way I've never really looked at this in so much detail as this week. I was sobered, humbled, and filled with worship at the same time. So the eternal God who lived and died and rose from the dead, he now says this to end this letter to Smyrna. He says, if you belong to me, you will conquer. Because in Romans 8, belonging to Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors. You will conquer, and listen, and you will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? The second death is hell itself. Revelation 20, verse 14 says, this is the second death, the lake of fire. In fact, let's turn to Romans or to Revelation chapter 20 just for a couple. I want you to see this for yourself. Romans 20, uh, verse 11. So this scene is the great white throne judgment. This is the end of time itself. This is the judgment to end all judgments. This is the entrance into the eternal state. This is big time serious. Revelation 20, verse 11. This is all going to happen. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it uh, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. You know what that means? That means that no one will be able to hide no one. There is no place for anyone to hide. Every single person will be subject to the reality and the judgment of God himself. And this is specifically for unbelievers right here. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Okay? And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Okay, now, now what's happening right here? This is not, hey, let's get the people out. Let's hold a trial and see whether or not um, um, they're guilty or innocent. No, no, no. The facts are in, man. It's just sentencing now. The facts are in. There's no trial. That, that's, that's been way done. Now we're going to open the books and find out who's in who's not. This is what's happening here. This is, this is the importance of this. And as notice it says, according to what they had done. That is not, if I'm a good enough person, then I get into heaven. Okay, if you're here right now and you think you get to heaven by being a good person, that is a lie from hell. Satan has been sending many, many people to lie, millions of people over the course of history by letting them believe if I'm a good enough person, then God will say, oh, you're not bad. Come on in and live with me forever. As opposed to the other person beside you who's not as good as you are. No, no, Jesus demands, God demands perfection. Not one sin gets into heaven. Not one single sin gets into heaven. That's why we're all smoked. Apart from Jesus Christ. Apart from faith in the forgiveness of our sins of Jesus Christ. This isn't, this isn't, oh, I did enough good deeds, I get in. No, no, no. This is solely, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ or rejected him? That's the work they have done. It's all faith. It's all faith. Faith or no faith. Love Christ or not love Christ. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. All people, all time, will be raised in their bodies to be presented for judgment. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Notice this. Death and Hades itself were thrown into the lake of fire. What does that mean? Death was the result of sin, and now death is gone. In eternity, death is gone into the lake of fire. Hades was the result of death. Sin equals death, 
death equals Hades. Hades, the beginning of the result of death, that is now gone. And the lake of fire is the most accurate description of hell itself. So listen to this. This is so important. There's a second and higher life, being born again, saved in Jesus Christ, eternal life, but there's also a second and deeper death. So these, there's eternal life and eternal death. And as after the second life, see, we celebrate second life, no more death, no more sin. Living with Christ in glory. But understand this, so after the second death, there is no more life. That's the definition of hell. There's no life at all. It's all perpetual death in consuming flames of horrific, unimaginable consequences of living apart from the grace and love and mercy of God. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Not my words, God's word. This is why he warns us, and this is why verse 15 is the last verse of that section. And if anyone's name was not found written in the, in the book of life, he was... He was thrown into, into the lake of fire. Okay, so the context of the church in Smyrna and their suffering. Let's be crystal clear and understand, okay, so, so the church in Smyrna was suffering. Okay, so, so we're learning right now again, again, we're learning. There's a cost of following Jesus Christ. But hear what Revelation 20 is saying. There's a much, much greater cost to not following Jesus Christ a infinitely greater cost to not following Jesus Christ. Um, there's some young people here today. You need to hear this right now. It's amazing to me, and this is, this is for everyone, but specifically young people, please. Again, wisdom calls right now. So many young people would rather be cool in this world and endanger their very souls to eternal damnation apart from God in the lake of fire. But I want to be cool right now. I want to be accepted, man. I want people to like me. I want to feel important. And you are willing to put your eternity at risk for the sake of being cool now. That is the most basic and full definition of foolishness and stupidity I could ever think of. And I was one of them. But you are hearing again today. I will take uncool now, cool for the rest of eternity. I will take unpopular dislike right now and save in the glory of Jesus Christ for the, think, 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 young people. Think right now. Think about what you're doing. You want to be accepted by a bunch of sinful people and sinful habits with the destruction of yourself and flesh to forsake life with Jesus Christ forever. Is it going to be worth it? Is it going to be worth it? This is why people wail when Jesus Christ returns. Because they wail because they realize I'm not with him. I've lived for self. I've lived for my sin. I've hated God. And now I pay the price for that. That is not worth it. Young people, listen. I'm preparing my kids right now, as recently as this week, saying, children, understand, if you follow Christ, you won't be liked. You won't be popular all the time. This won't always go well. But deal with that as opposed to the other side of that and being rejected for all of eternity apart from God himself. See, see, hear, hear, live, live. Believe, believe. Who cares if we're not liked? Who cares if we're not accepted? Because the alternative is horrific. Wisdom. Wisdom. And this is why Jesus says to the suffering church in Smyrna, he says the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. In other words, Jesus says, hey church, hey church, it's gonna be worth it. It's going to be so, so worth it. 